Good morning, Snoqualmie Valley Bible Church. It's a very exciting time for Jennifer and I. A lot of transitions, new job for me, new house. And uh, words can't, I don't know what words to use to just explain how we feel about this nomination. Uh, We feel good about it. Um, I'll say that, but uh, very, very uh, humbled and uh, we appreciate it, and we're excited. And uh, Lord, church, please pray for, for pray for us that the Lord would continue to use us as He sees fit. And we're very excited. And uh, Jeff, I believe uh, the second round of questions you sent me was to, uh, uh, from memory, recite all the scribes and the genealogies, forward and backward, in Chronicles. Right? Okay. Turn uh, in your Bibles to Psalm 2. Psalm, not Psalms 2, but Psalm 2. And the title of this message is The Reign of Christ. The Reign of Christ. I love, I love a good drama. I love... A good, a good epic, and uh, we've see, we we can see those in movies. We can see those in books, and the Holy Spirit, by His inspiration uh, through David's pen or quill, has written Psalm two in the form of an epic or in the form of a drama, like, like a play. We see in this beautifully crafted twelve-line, four-stanza psalm, each being equal and and about how big they are and their contribution to the whole. We see the fall of man. You see man's, because of his fall, you see his heated and emotional and his irrational rebellion against his creator. And then in the next stanza, you see the creator's response to that rebellion. Unmoved confidence in his own plan, in, in his own king that he will install. And then in the third stanza, you see the king's confidence in, in that creator's plan. And then in the fourth, you see an appeal as if it were from a herald urgently appealing, urgently pleading with those rebels from the first stanza to stop their rebellion and to think soberly, to apply discernment, to do what is wise and reasonable, to stop their resistance to God's sovereign plan, to stop their resistance and rebellion to the man that God has chosen as king, for them to realize soberly they can't hope to stand against this one who has a rod of iron capable of smashing all the nations. They can't hope to stand against him and in their realization of that that they might cease their senseless raging and recognize his rule that they might be reconciled to him before their cataclysmic end that's those are all pieces of a great epic of a great drama now the psalm was not the earliest psalm written that probably goes to psalm 90 penned by moses and then there were some written by the sons of korah who would have come around Moses' time or shortly after. That's 1400 B.C., about 
400-something years before David wrote. But despite this not being among the earliest psalms, an unknown compiler, an, un, uh, an unknown compiler places this psalm so close to the beginning of the book because the unmistakable subject of the psalm is the authority and the power and the might to a certain son of David who will rule, who will reign, and who will crush all those who oppose him and those who harass his people. And yet at the same time, he mercifully accepts any rebels who come to him in humility and they cast off their rebellious ways and pay homage to him as the rightful king. Church, your Lord, the, Christ, the, the Lord Christ Jesus is the focus of this psalm. And his righteous, unchallenged, blessed reign, which he will exercise in the kingdom of God, has been an object of absolute hope and of concrete hope for God's people since it was written. And for that reason, because the psalm so simply and so clearly lifts up Christ and points to Christ. The Psalter places it here as the second psalm so that as the reader opens the book, Christ is placed central and foremost in his mind. So in this psalm, we see we are given four voices that speak concerning the reign of Christ. Four, four voices that each in their part speak concerning the reign of God's chosen king, the Messiah. In verses 1 to 3, you'll see that the nations take stage and they speak. In verses 4 to 6, the nations are replaced with the voice of the Father. Verses 7 to 9, you'll see that the, the Son speaks. And verses 10 to 12, the Spirit speaks. You'll notice that I have applied a Trinitarian theme or motif to this outline. David is writing the whole thing, but I hope that by showing you, uh, alluding to the some of the prerogatives of each member of the Trinity, that you will see that they, that these each stanza reflects that person. The nations, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. So let's read the text. Psalm two. And this is this is this is a memorable line. Why are the nations in an uproar? And the peoples devising a vain thing. The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast their cords away from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, but as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, 
You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son that he not become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. So the first voice to take center stage is the voice of the nations in verses 1 through 3. And the voice that they give is a voice, the voice of the world. It is a voice of defiance. It is a voice of rebellion. It is a voice of insurrection. David describes the state of the nations. They are not in a state of peace. They are not calm. They are not coolly collected. They are in an uproar. And there, this word for raging it describes a, a vast and a wide scoping restlessness among them. And this word could describe the restless waters of the ocean during a, a storm, the surface of the waters that are never calm. They are never still. They are never ceasing. There is a, there is a franticness about their raging and the word raging carries with it the idea of of heat it is a it is a heated raging there is a built up and yet confined energy that wants to be released but it can't when david king david is speaking of the nations outside of israel he's primarily thinking of the of the pagans he the word is uh, of nations is ethnos where we get the word Gentiles. And he has in mind the many nations who had proved to be a thorn in the side of God's people, the, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Edomites, the, the Phoenicians, the Philistines, and others that, that I can't pronounce. These were people groups out, outside the covenant relationship that Israel enjoyed with their God. And so when David speaks of their hostility, he rightly assesses them as, you can see, the kings of the earth. And I want you to keep that term, kings of the earth. Keep that title in your mind. But this is a wide, far-encompassing implication about what man does naturally. Those who are outside of God's revelation, those who are outside of God's covenant, they are naturally not at peace with God. They are naturally hostile to God. Man is naturally rebellious against God, rebellious against God's decree, and rebellious against God's anointed one. The word anointed one in Hebrew is, is where we get the word Messiah, which in Greek is translated Christ. So there's no mistaking this psalm is about God's Christ. And while David is... Primarily in his context, he's looking at the nations outside of covenant relationship. In the New Testament, the apostles Peter and John quote this psalm in Acts 4 after they had been preaching about the Lord Jesus and they were arrested and they were questioned and interrogated and then 
because they really didn't have anything to hold them with, they were let go. The apostles rejoice and they say in Acts 4 that the peoples of Israel were actually lumped along with the culprits, Pilate, Pilate and Herod and the Gentiles. So it's not abusing the text to lump in all peoples, Jew and Gentile, not merely kings and rulers in this insurrection of, against God and his anointed. And what's interesting is historians can, can demonstrate that, the, that the, the, the Gentiles, that the Romans and the Jews amply had no love for one another. And yet we can see in Luke 23:12 that very day, Pilate and Herod became friends with one another. Why? Because of their opposition to Christ. Because of their dissatisfaction and rebellion to Christ. Now, when David asks this question, why do the nations rage, although he does provide an explanation in verse 3, I believe he's asking the question rhetorically, and he's asking it with this sense of bemused, uh, resigned bemusement. David says that because of their raging, they devise a vain thing, and vanity means something that is pointless, something that is fruitless. It is something that is empty something that is void, something that yields no value. It is worthless. And the idea is of, uh, is of breathing on a cold day, and you see, that, you see that fog come out of your, you can see your breath but for a moment, and you can't grab it, you can't grab after it, and after a second, it, what, it vanishes. It's subsumed into the, into the elements. As the, that's the idea, that's the visual idea of, of something that is vain and futile. And we can be sure that when kings and leaders and military strategists, when they take their counsel and they, take, they, they make their stand together and they pool their resources and they combine, they combine their counsel, and a vain and empty and fruitless and worthless result is not really the outcome that they want. It's not what they're intending to get, but David supplies that description as the sole qualifier of what they get for all, all that they put into it. For all that they do, a vain thing is all that they get. And this reminds me of what Paul says in Romans 1, chapter, uh, chapter 1, verse 21, when he says that all, and this is speaking of all men, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God, but became futile, became vain, became worthless in their thinking. And professing to be fools, thinking that they were high and mighty, they, or thinking they were wise, rather, they became fools. So, what is their vain thing? What is the, the vanity that they produce? Well, that is to throw off the authority of God. Their vanity is to think that they can throw off the authority of God. What is it the peoples and the kings say together with all their wisdom and all their counsel? Let us, verse 3, let us tear their, speaking to God and, and his Christ, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. Fetters and cords being 
tools used to bind and to imprison, to enslave, and to the heathen, to those outside of covenant relationship to Yahweh, to stand before God immersed in their rebellious ways, to the thought of coming to God and and submitting themselves to his rule and to the reign of the king that he chooses to submit to the one that God places on the throne, why, that's like being in the stocks. Might as well be in prison. It's not where they want to be. It's not what they want to do. Subjected to the one they hate, the one they despise, the one who knows the thoughts and intents of their hearts and has the gall to actually call them out on it. John three nineteen to 20 says this, This is the judgment that light has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than the light. Why? For their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. Why do men hate the light of God's revelation? Because the light of God's revelation dares to shine on the deeds of their hearts. And sinners, Scripture tells us, sinners love their sin so much they'd rather expunge the light than come to it and to live in it. And what brighter light is there to come into the world than Christ? What brighter light is there is there than the second Moses, the prophet who Moses said would have the very words of God in his mouth. And it's fitting to say that because he is God himself. Why do the nations rage? Because they hate God. And they hate that the Messiah that God has chosen to reign over them. And what does their raging yield them? The fruitless delusion, the vain thought that they could actually thwart their creator, that they could depose his sovereign rule, and that they could be the captain of their own destiny. Beloved, that raging is in all of those walking in this earth today, outside of Christ. And you don't have to go very far to see that raging manifested. That is perhaps the greatest lie that mankind has ever bought into, that man is in control, that man is in charge. That's a position rightly deserving by God alone. And so that's, that is the content of the nations voicing themselves. Verses 1 to 3. Now, The nations are replaced by the voice of the Father, verses 4 to 6. And this is qualified as the Father speaking because this is the one whom has chosen, whom has sent, whom has installed Messiah as king. And we know from the New Testament, particularly from John, that Jesus didn't come to follow his own agenda or to speak his own mind on the issues of the day. He came because he was commissioned because he was sent by his father. And he came to fulfill the will of his father. How does the father respond 
to the raging of the whole world. How does he respond? Look at verse 4. He laughs. Now, this isn't, if you have kids, if you have children who, who you text with, they may text you LOL from time to time. This is not an LOL laugh. This is not a snicker. This is not a chuckle. This is, as one friend says it, this is a hrumph. This is a, it's a huff, like, followed by, that's ridiculous. This is a deriding. This is a mocking laugh that does not find humor. It does not find amusement in what has been presented before him. Now, there's a couple things to look at at this God who laughs at the rebels. One, God is not called God in this line, but he's described as he who sits in the heavens. God is not like the pagan gods of the nations that were limited to some locality. You had, if you were to have examined the pagan religions, you would have the God of the hills, the God of the trees, the gods of the rivers and of the waters that you would try to appease and appeal to. But more or less, they were limited. They, 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 they resided within their specific locality, and they didn't really go beyond their borders. But God is described as he who sits in the heavens, as opposed to the king's of the earth. God's realm of sovereign rule is not limited by any geographic feature. And even though he had primarily manifested himself to Israel and through Israel, his, the truth is his sovereign reign extended and covered even these kings of the earth and their realms. If you want proof of that, read the Exodus. It, so not only is God, not only does David call God the God, uh, he who sits in the heavens, but he describes him as he who sits. He who sits. And it's not strange, it's not unordinary to imagine a, a king or a sovereign sitting on his throne. But when said king receives word that there is an army, that there is a rebellious lot marching and encroaching upon his borders or even at the gates, banging on the door, that king is not going to stay sitting. He will rise. He will begin consulting his counselors, and he will begin calling his generals. And if it's an army that's still afar off, he might send out. His, he might dispatch his ambassadors to, to ask for terms of peace. The, the king who just sits calmly, coolly, and collectively is not a king who's seriously taking this threat. Which underlies the truth that God is not serious. He doesn't take this threat seriously. He isn't pacing. He isn't fretting. He isn't worried. He's not threatened in the slightest by the combined horde of his creation standing in unison, standing in arms against their creator. God's not worried. And so God, who is completely unfazed at this sight, he laughs. And then he doesn't stay laughing. That, that laughing is not an ongoing 
action. But it is immediately followed by by him speaking to them. Verse 5, he speaks to them in his anger. And this just underlines again the fact that God does not see this as a laughing matter, that this is not an amusing thing for him, but it's truly a matter that offends a holy God. A matter that trespasses the authority of the sovereign ruler of all heaven and all earth. And so what does, the, what does he say in his anger? What, what does his anger cause him to do? He says, says to the rebels, but as for me, but as for me, and this is a dependent clause that is begging for the, the sentence to be completed because it doesn't, it doesn't make sense on his own. And what it means is, Whatever the case, whatever they do, whatever those fools do, I've made my decision. I'm going to do. I'm going to stick to it. What is that decision? He, despite the rebels' best efforts to thwart him and reject their king, he's going to install Messiah anyway. Almost as if to spite them. He's going to make Messiah king anyway and 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 when i read this i was taken to that text that we read a couple months ago in first peter that talked about christ being the chief cornerstone whom the builders rejected that cornerstone whom they examined whom they tested and measured and found wanting the cornerstone stone who by their measurements and their estimates, they found wanting and so discarded. And then God comes along and said, no, 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 no. There's nothing wrong with this cornerstone. In fact, I think he's precious. I think this cornerstone is perfect. And I'm going to use him and place him as the foundation of my people. And I'm going to build my church on him, O builders of Israel. Remember that Christ Jesus is the only one upon whom the Father has said, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. No one else in Scripture gets that said about them. Perfectly pleased, perfectly satisfied by the Son's own righteousness. And you can't help but admire the irony that God has declared perfect and lovely and beautiful, the very Messiah that the people callously threw away and disgust. And it goes to show you how little we ought to esteem the values and wisdom of man and how much we ought to value and esteem the estimates, estimations and the judgments of God. But the fact that the Father tells them this, it has an effect on the people, on the rebels. It terrifies them. It terrifies them and it confirms their doom and their fears that the one that they've rejected and rebelled against has been accepted by God and used nonetheless. And though they do their best to suppress the knowledge, that knowledge deep down inside, the rebels know that they walk in disobedience to God by rejecting this Christ. So the nations voice their rebellion. The the Father voices his challenged yet unthreatened placement of Christ. And now we see Christ himself raise his voice. Verses 7 to 9, Christ speaks, the Son speaks. 
the king himself now speaks. And what is amazing is that once the king, the Christ, gets the microphone in in this four-point drama, once it's his turn to speak, he doesn't do what politicians usually do or electorates do. He doesn't go off and he doesn't talk about himself. He doesn't talk about his aspirations or what he hopes to do. He doesn't boast about himself, but rather he merely repeats what the Father has said to him. His sole voice in this performance is to repeat the words and the promises of his Father. And there are three promises that God had made concerning Messiah that are brought up. They are the relationship between God and Messiah, the inheritance of Messiah, and the might of of Messiah, And to see what I believe was David's basis for these promises, turn to 2 Samuel chapter 10. I think this was the anchor. You know, faith has to have an anchor. Faith has to actually dig in and hold something for it to be exercised. And I think this was David's, this was the anchor for David's thoughts as he was exercising his faith. Second Samuel chapter 7. This is a wonderful, crucial, important text in the Old Testament that I, I hope and trust many of you are familiar with. It's known as the Davidic Covenant. It's repeated in First Chronicles chapter 14. Verses, chapter 7, verses 10. I will, God is speaking through Nathan the prophet, but he, essentially speaking directly to David. And he says, I will also appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them that they may live there in their own place and not be disturbed again. Nor will the wicked afflict them any more as formerly, even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. And notice, verse 12, When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you, who will, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed before you. Your house, this is kind of a summary statement to conclude it, your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever, for your throne shall be established forever. So first, God had promised David that his son, who was to receive the benefits of this covenant, his son who would be the, a participant in this covenant, would in some sense become the son of God. That, 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 that God would somehow look to David's descendant and say that he is God's son and that the son could somehow look to God and look to him as a father. And how David 
probably understood this, if you're looking at verses 14 and 15, understanding that the leaders and that the kings of Israel, if they were going to be successful kings, if they were going to have a successful reign, that they had to have a life marked with obedience, David probably understood this to mean that God would have such a relationship with with this boy, with this young man, that his son would have such a relationship marked with love and obedience for God that even should he fall into sin, that his that he will not lose the kingdom the way Saul did when he sinned. That that his son would have a life perpetually marked with a strong, vibrant, trusting, obedient relationship to God. In the same way that a good son has with his father. What I'm not sure, what I can't say, is that David knew that Messiah wouldn't come for almost a thousand years, and that when the anointed, promised son of David did arrive, it would be none other than the the eternal son of God made incarnate, eternal God wrapped in human flesh. I don't think David grasped that. I think, in all likelihood, David probably anticipated that one of his immediate sons, like, like Amnon or probably Absalom, which might explain why he seemed to hope against hope that Absalom would come around, even though he was a numbskull. But he probably thought Absalom or Solomon would be the Christ. Point being, Messiah could look to God as his father, and being a son entitled one to a son's inheritance. And what is that inheritance? The second promise given, verses 8. Inheritance is just just the nations, only the nations and very ends of the earth. That's all. Not much. Now, the Father says to Messiah, Ask of me and I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance. And the very ends of the earth as your possession. Notice the irony here. There's there's humor here. Messiah will receive as his inheritance the nations who are rebelling against God in the beginning of the psalm. Well, packed into the white space of your Bible is the fact that before Messiah would come as the conquering king, before he would come and rightfully claim what's his, what belongs to him, and, and, and before he would wipe away any and all opposition from the earth, before he could do that, he would have to suffer and die for the sins of his people so that by expunging their guilt, he could redeem them and give them to, the, to his father. And then the father would in turn take those redeemed people who were redeemed through the blood of Calvary and he would give them as a love gift, as an inheritance to Messiah, to his beloved son. The relationship, the inheritance. And then when Messiah does come to claim what is rightfully his, he will come with a mighty strength, with an undeniable authority and power. God says to Messiah, you shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. 
Now, how much resistance does a clay pot have to the blows of an iron rod? Not much. Turn over to Revelation 19. Revelation 19. This is, this is the Christ coming that David and, the, Jew, and the, the, the Jews probably had in mind when they read this psalm. This is the conquering king. Revelation 19, verses 11 to 16. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he had a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dripped in blood, which he gets from slaying his enemies. And his name is called the Word of God. Is there any mistake who this is? And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. Notice his clothes are dripped in blood, but the clothes of all those who accompany him are white and clean. Who's doing the fighting? Who is the one waging the war? From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God Almighty, and on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. If you look down to verse 21, the, the beast and, and the false prophet and some uh, an accumulation of some who were still there had risen up against Christ, and verse 21 says, The rest were killed after the beast and the false prophet were thrown into the lake of fire. The rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. horse. The sword of his mouth. Think about that. The sword of his mouth. If you compare the book of Revelation, and that, that phrase, the sword of his mouth, is seen several times in Revelation. If you compare Genesis 1, where God creates all things by speaking, with Revelation, where Christ, where Messiah is come, and he is coming and he is making all things new. He is restoring the creation because creation is cursed right now. He is restoring everything by the sword that comes out of his mouth. What might? What power? Psalm 2 began with the nations voicing their rebellion against the reign of Messiah. The Father voiced his determination to ratify Messiah's reign, and then Messiah himself testifies to the God-given charge of his reign. And now the fourth scene, the the fourth stanza where the Spirit of God speaks. Verses 10 to 12. The Spirit of God speaks warning and wooing, and convicting rebellious sinners to listen to what has been said. Take heed. Show 
discernment. Soberly consider what has been declared to you concerning Messiah. And this is the Spirit because Christ Jesus himself says in John 15:26 and in 16:7 to 14 what the Spirit of God is consumed with. He's, he said that the Spirit of God is consumed with testifying of and of glorifying the Son of God. And he does that in the hearts of sinners so as to convert them and to bring them into reconciliation with God. The Spirit's chief prerogative for sinners is not to manifest wonders and cheap thrills so as to entertain goats, but what he does is convict them of their need for the Good Shepherd and to spiritually bring them to and to unite them to the Good Shepherd so they might cease to be goats and they might become his sheep. That's what the Spirit does. The Spirit says, look to Jesus. Fall upon him in faith and belief that he died for your sins, that he was crucified, and that he rose according to the Scriptures, which he inspired, by the way, the Spirit. The Spirit says, look to Jesus and receive him while you have the opportunity. Receive Jesus while you have the opportunity. Don't delay. Don't wait. He says, show discernment. Show sober thinking. Make the reasonable, rational, logical choice. Listen to what has been said and decide for yourself what you're going to do. Faith doesn't have to be absurd. Faith doesn't have to be far-fetched. In fact, faith can be exercised through very reasonable terms, very reasonable conditions. And it's not the blind, irrational, impulsive choice that the nations do by their raging in verse 3. In fact, this submitting and accepting Christ is the very reasonable, logical thing to do, concern, uh, especially in light of what has been said about him. So those very same kings who are rebelling, along with their peoples, along with the judges of the earth, verse 10, the Spirit of God is warning that there is coming a day where the patience of God will have run its course. The patience of God will have run its course. Time is running out. But that day has not yet come, and rebel, good news, you still have time. Don't delay. Don't wait. You have the opportunity to stop your rebellion and worship God in spirit and truth by submitting to the one that he has declared king of the earth. Submitting to the one and worshiping and revering and paying homage to the one that God has said he is the Christ. Pay homage to him now, the Spirit says. Show reverence to him now because there will be a day when his righteous anger will be kindled. And the honest to God truth is that those who stand against him will have lost their opportunity to be received with favor. That's the truth. Dr. Will Varner observed, 
who's a, he's a professor of mine in Jennifer's down in Southern California, he observed that Psalm 212 is the John 316 of the Old Testament. Think about that. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, and whoever, whoever believes, whoever has faith in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. For God so loved the nations that he gave Messiah, the son of David, that whoever honors him, whoever takes refuge in him, verse 12, shall not perish but shall be blessed. Oh, Lord Jesus, thank you for this wonderful psalm that exalts you and lifts you up as the object of hope. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to remove the idols from our hearts and the idols of our lives. Lord, this psalm posits you forth as the king, as the ruler, as the sovereign whom your father has appointed. That is your rightful place. Give us eyes to see that and hearts to believe it. Let nothing take your place in our hearts. Give us conviction and strength to herald this urgent plea to our friends, to our families, to our loved ones, to our neighbors. Help us to love them by urging them and appealing them to consider what the Scripture says concerning you and their need to be reconciled to you. Convict in their hearts the reality that judgment is coming. Lord, thank you for the mercy and forgiveness that we have in your name.